This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Off the Record. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL and podcasts wherever podcasts are cast. Our guest is Brendan Nyan. He's a professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College. Dartmouth College is a small college, but there are those who still love it. His research focuses on misperceptions about politics and healthcare. He's been published in numerous journals, uh, named an Andrew Carnegie Fellow by the Carnegie Corporation, a Belfer Fellow by the um, Anti-Defamation League, won the Emerging Scholar Award for top scholar in his field. Uh, We're very pleased to have you as our guest, Brendan. Welcome to Off the Record. Thanks. It's great to be here. So Matt Robeson, I'm going to throw it to you for the first softball. I love accepting the baton. Uh, Brendan, welcome to the show. So you've been doing a ton of research that is just super timely for the moment we find ourselves in politically in the turn from 2020 to 2021. And your most recent study, at least uh, the, the, the highest profile one, um, is really fascinating. You put out a paper at the tail end of 2020 where you talk about the fact that nowadays we can't all even agree about basic facts anymore. And that may even extend to the people making decisions in government. So what was that study about? What did you find? Well, let me ask, which study are you thinking of? I'm not actually sure. I do a lot of studies about how people can't agree on basic facts. Unfortunately, there's 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 many out there. So which uh, one I was, did you have I was referring to more accurate, but no less polarized, ah. comparing the factual beliefs of government officials and the public. Yeah. So this is, a, I think, an interesting question, one that's especially germane right now as we uh, look at whether members of Congress will accept factual reality about the results of the election. Um, so my co-authors, uh, Nathan Lee, DJ Flynn, Jason Reifler, and I did a study where we compared the factual beliefs of a national representative sample of the American public with a group of local government officials that we were able to recruit through a specialized sample. And what we wanted to do was to see whether elites were actually better informed or worse informed than the public. You could, you could tell the story both ways. On the one hand, um, what helps you become a public official might mean that you're better informed, right? You know more about politics, it's your job, or you've been selected because of your aptitude and capacity, right? That would be the optimistic story. Um, the pessimistic story is our political system is so polarized that when we ask people for their factual beliefs about these highly polarized issues, that we'd actually get more misperceptions, um, at least among the party that tends to believe the false information on any particular issue. Um, and so uh, we thought that was an interesting comparison to make. Yeah, and you really see this playing out for, as you alluded to right now in the whole debate going on in Congress about whether to accept the factually supported results of the election. And you see highly intelligent and, I mean, you know, definition of elite. These are Ivy League educated uh, Republican senators who are 
not accepting the results of the election and are now that it could be that they're just kind of playing politics with it, but it does kind of tie into what you were suggesting there that even though these are information elites, cultural elites, political elites, they don't seem to be immune from these basic misperceptions of facts, or at least their actions suggest that they're not. Unfortunately, that's right. I mean, in, in, in that particular study, we found that, uh, you know, as the title you quoted suggested that elites on average were were better informed. So they had more accurate beliefs overall. But the gap between Democrats and Republicans was not reduced um, among elites compared to the public. So it didn't seem like um, when people were better informed, that brought them together in the way that we might hope. And I think you can, um, you know, you can draw some parallels there to what we're seeing in terms of acceptance of the election result. If you compare um, Republican elites in Congress to the public, there are more Republicans in Congress who are accepting the election results than polls suggest among party identifiers. Um, but it's still quite polarized with respect to um, where Democrats are uh, in Congress. And that's creating a real crisis for our political system as we face down the possibility of um, you know, half or more of a major party rejecting the results of an election, which is possible uh, as a, a potential outcome this week. So, you know, it it strikes me that one one of the one of the uh, victims of the inability of of uh, of politicians and the general public to agree on basic facts or to act on what might be a common set of some facts or assumptions is that we are seeing just how fragile our democracy is and how critical to the maintenance of a uh, of a normally dysfunctional democracy and government accepted norms are and the inability to agree on basic facts seems to be um, one of the casualties of the loss of the norms. So I'm curious uh, what you have found or see about the root causes. Why, why don't people agree on basic facts? I mean, yes, there's the rise of social media and news is fractured and we don't have uh, Walter Cronkite telling us, well, that's the way it is. Um, so is that the whole reason or is there more to the story? I think there's definitely more to the story. Um, I'm a real skeptic of people who just point the finger at, at social media. Um, but actually, I, I would I would take the, the story even further. I'm not sure things are worse in the sense that people are less well-informed than in the past. Um, there were lots of misperceptions and conspiracy theories in the mid-20th century too, the time we valorized. They, however, didn't align as closely with the political divide in this country. Um, and they didn't seem to influence people in power uh, so much, with notable exceptions we can talk about, of course. Um, but the way in which um, misperceptions and conspiracy theories now are part of the bundle of um, views that party identifiers espouse is quite striking, right? Something like the JFK assassination was not aligned with people's partisanship, um, the conspiracy theories that people believed about it, right? Whereas now, what you think about voter fraud or death panels or whatever the misperception or conspiracy theory is, is closely aligned with partisanship. And so 
I worry um, that's a, the shift that matters. And I don't think that's a story about social media. Social media is probably helping to exacerbate that trend for a subset of people who are extremely online, as we call them, among people who use social media a lot. Um, it's not everybody, though. Um, but there is this group of people who are mainlining this stuff 24-7 and also via TV. You know, we should not sleep on the importance of TV. Um, so media are helping to drive this trend. But really, I guess what I would just say is, you know, we've been in this long process of polarization. Um, you know, you both have lived through it, right? As the parties have pulled further and further apart. And that's a mixed bag. But when it comes to facts, it, it's hard to see too much upside, right? There are reasonable uh, disagreements that the parties might have about over their political philosophies about what we should do, right? That's politics. Actually, that's normal. And in some ways, polarization means voters are getting clearer choices between the parties. The problem is when the underlying facts themselves become polarized. And that's something we didn't anticipate becoming such a severe challenge. So let really, me, oh, go ahead, Paul, you go. Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm thinking back. So I got to Congress in, uh, to, uh, after the election of 2006. And back then, 80% uh, of the people I uh, was serving with were new to a majority. And we had lived through the mid nineties, Newt Gingrich takeover, and everybody was whining about what Newt Gingrich did to Congress. They, it, was, it was the story that all my colleagues were educating me about. I was a fresh freshman behind the years congressman and they were whining about how well in the good old days before Newt Gingrich, we'd play softball together and our kids would, would all see each other and we'd all go to the same cocktail parties and we'd hang out in the same places and we were all good buddies and golly, wasn't it great in politics? You know, we'd leave it at the, leave it at the office and, and then things started to change. Gingrich made everybody go back to their districts every weekend and nobody, nobody was in Washington anymore and our kids stopped playing and we stopped drinking with each other and things got really bad from there. And now here we are with Joe Wilson yelling at Barack Obama, you lie during the State of the Union address. Now that seems pretty calm uh, comparatively to what's going on uh, these days, in the past 14 years, that trend among the politicians who represent us uh, has now extended to ignorance, either willful or blind, of the basic facts. It, it happens to coincide with the astounding rise of social media, because um, when I got to Congress, there were, there were no iPhones. There were no iPads. There was no uh, Google. There was no Facebook. And my, oh my, doesn't that seem like a bizarre long time ago? But, but politicians are supposed to be a little smarter than that and not give in. Is it simply the lust for power? Well, I mean, you, you, you have more expertise here than I uh, do, but I guess I would just say, you know, when, when, um, political scientists think about politicians, we think about ambitious, uh, career-minded people who respond to the incentives they face. And the incentives you described have, you know, shaped the careers of the legislators, um, you know, who serve, not just who opts into running, but who opts to stay and who opts to leave, right? And um, I think that's a quite powerful force. Um, you know, 
I'm glad you brought up Newt Gingrich because it reminds us again of how many of these trends had been set in motion before the current era. Um, he was a real innovator in violating norms in Congress, right? And we've seen that escalation of norm violation proceed into other domains. Um, but the reason it worked is the incentives that were there. He recognized those incentives. The system has helped create those incentives. A two-party system with ideologically polarized parties um, is prone to this kind of zero-sum conflict. Um, in many ways, the mid-20th century period that we valorize as the time of bipartisan comedy is a historical anomaly. Um, that is not a norm we um, are going to return to. And it's not even clear that it's something we should aspire to return to, given that it was built on um, the systematic racial apartheid in the South that divided the parties and created the conditions where that kind of legislating could take place. That's not a world we're going to go back to. So we need to figure out how our institutions are going to work now. And we need to make changes that align the incentives of politicians with the interests of the country. And that's, I think, the challenge that we're, we're facing right now. Those Republicans in Congress right now who are thinking about whether to vote against the Electoral College, uh, accepting the electors, um, you know, they're responding to the incentives that they face. We can't simply say we need people of better character. Um, of course we do, but if the system depends on that, it will fail, right? If we have, what about the next Secretary of State of Georgia? What if he or she or they are not as, uh, as committed to upholding the rule of law and um, protecting the election results as the current Georgia Secretary of State has been? We're in big trouble. And I think that's a dilemma we're gonna to have to face. So what I wanna do here is I'm gonna tease the question that I'm gonna lob at you. And then I think we're gonna take a little radio break and we're gonna come right back. So I'm gonna let you think about it, but I'm so glad you brought up the question of incentives. You know, we had Ryan McConaughey who is sort of the right-hand man on policy to Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, uh, old friend of ours on the show a few weeks ago. And we were talking about trying to fix some of the institutional problems in the US Senate. And he made a killer point that sounds like you're singing from the same hymnal. He said, look, you're not gonna fix institutions. You're not gonna fix the inside baseball until you fix the incentives incentives outside the institution, the incentives that politicians are responding to, right? People respond to incentives, as you're saying, you're not going to, you're not going to get anywhere until you fix those political incentives. So when we get back from the break, I'd like to ask you, what are the fixes here to these problems that are plaguing us, our inability to agree on anything, let alone basic facts? Um, and are there ways to fix those underlying incentives? So Paul, that is the tease. You want to take us out? You know, you're really, you are such a tease. It's really, a tease. It is, it's really true. This is Off the Record. Uh, we are produced by WKXL and podcast all over the known universe. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We are speaking with Professor Brendan Nyan of the Department of Government at my alma mater, Dartmouth College, where is he is keeping the Ebenezer Wheelock flame burning bright, diving deep into what's going on in politics today. We're going to take a short break to hear from the good people who keep our station on the air, and we will be back after this. We're back. It's off the record. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We are speaking with Professor Brendan Nyan of the Department of Government at Dartmouth College, and before we took our break, Matt Robeson, the chief tease or teaser in chief, 
teased the quest. Next question. What can we do to fix the problem of our inability to agree on basic facts? Well, I wish I wish I had the magic bullet here. Um, you know, this is one of those where it's, it's much easier, unfortunately, for us to diagnose the problem than it is to prescribe a, a quick fix. Um, you know, polarization is going to go away. I do believe that the point we made earlier about incentives is is a, a valuable one to recognize. We need to raise the costs of uh, making false statements for politicians. So I've been a big uh, supporter of the fact checking movement. I've done a lot of research on it. Um, and it's not perfect, but it is a way to try to raise the cost of making false statements for politicians. It's an innovation in political journalism that responded to the increasing supply of false statements um, in, 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 you know, from politicians in public. And that, uh, I think, is an example of how we can try to change those incentives. Will that undo the incentives that um, encourage people to make so many false statements? You know, no, but, you know, we want to at least try to move that um, incentive on the margin a little bit, and in that way, deter people from um, making uh, false statements. Um, and I would just say that, you know, people in their everyday life can contribute to this too. You know, everyone is an influencer among their own friends and family on social media. And in that way can help, um, you know, try to limit the spread of false information by respectfully letting people know if they shared something that's not true and by deleting and retracting or correcting when you do happen to share something. Um, that's false, which of course we all do. Um, it's easy to fall victim to that kind of thing. Um, you know, in, in the broader sense, um, I think people are starting to consider, uh, you know, institutional reforms that maybe weren't on the table in an earlier time. Um, I would recommend to listeners Lee Drutman's book, um, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, which talks about different kinds of ways to make multi-party democracy possible within the US system. And not all of them require constitutional changes. Um, his argument is that the two-party system itself creates this destructive zero-sum logic that um, is very difficult to break out of and is the cause of many of our problems. And I should just say, by the way, for listeners, I am not dying in an avalanche. Um, Paul mentioned that I'm at Dartmouth. The sounds you may be hearing are uh, snow sliding off the roof here and, and uh, hitting the ground outside my office. So you're getting a little bit of a audio soundscape of Hanover right now. Well, you know, it, it's good. At least there is snow. I mean, now that we have the um, the the uh, uh, atmosphere of, I don't know, Virginia or maybe Bermuda coming to New Hampshire, it's good. At least that there's snow somewhere. So, what I have a question, just a quick follow up question about the fact checking movement. So, uh, recently we've seen our vaunted president of the United States, the misinformation spreader in chief. Um, uh, refusing to sign the defense authorization bill because uh, he didn't like that the social media companies were fact-checking him. Uh, and so he, he joined the push to remove the liability protection from these giant social media companies. One of the questions that comes to mind from what you've just said is that given the size and scope and influence of the social media behemoths, which now have more to do with shaping public opinion than political debate. How far should fact-checking go? How far can it go? Are there First Amendment implications in the fact-checking? And what happens when 
when the private corporate interests are so dominant in the society, um, uh, is it, are you in favor of uh, the federal government stepping in to regulate um, the facts that the social media giants are, are carrying uh, on their cyber networks? Well, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of the government coming in and trying to regulate facts. I think our First Amendment traditions would suggest that uh, doing so would be a bad idea. Um, think about who you least like in political life and imagine them having influence over what factual claims are allowed to be um, made um, or are subject to sanction. And you can imagine how that could be problematic in a free society. Um, at the same time, the, the social media giants are huge. Um, and they do have a tremendous responsibility. I think we face a dilemma here, which is the First Amendment doesn't really map to the social media landscape as we understand it. We worried about a form of centralized control over speech via the government. But now uh, Facebook in particular, um, but also YouTube and Twitter and other platforms are exercising control over speech on a previously unimaginable scale. They're not subject to the First Amendment. It's not a First Amendment issue because they're not part of the government, but they are de facto making public policy on this global scale. But even in the U.S., you know, tens and hundreds of millions of people are, are logging on to their various products every day. That's an incredible responsibility. The thing I think we should worry about is, on the one hand, those platforms can be vectors of misinformation, and we've seen uh, that happen many times. On the other hand, I think we should be nervous about asking giant unaccountable corporations to exercise control over speech at this vast scale. And I don't know if we've quite figured out how to square those two competing impulses. It's an incredibly difficult problem. So we have a whole passel of things we want to ask you about, and we definitely want to get to your work on vaccine misinformation, but I got to jump a little bit ahead of what Paul and I were talking about, all the things we want to ask you about. I want to jump to another particular hobby horse of mine, because part of your work, you're focused on uh, misperceptions and false information and intake of information. And in a larger sense, though, what you're, what you're really focused on is how people form opinions, how people form political opinions. And I think we're at a really troubled, or at least a curious moment for that broader topic. We're coming off of a political campaign season in a run-up to November 3rd, where Democrats wildly outspent Republicans in trying to communicate their political views in trying to move voters. And yet it didn't seem to move the needles either in polls or in the ultimate outcomes. Think about Senate races in Kentucky and Maine and South Carolina and all the swing states where there's just a ton of data on TV spending and other forms of political communication and no movement in the polls. So is it possible these days based on all of your work to persuade anyone of anything anymore and follow up to that, if that isn't a big enough question for you, you know, Democrats, I think Democrats mean, is, can be translated as re repeats facts smugly. Are Democrats going about this the wrong way by trying to repeat facts as part of their persuasion campaigns? Yeah, those are good questions. So I would say on the first point, um, it's definitely true that the effects of money are, are, are far smaller than people often anticipate. So people hear these arguments about campaign reform and they think that money straightforwardly buys votes. But the people in the campaign business who do the empirical research on this stuff will tell you just how hard it is to turn money into votes, particularly in these cases where 
the race is already saturated and all the easy spending has already been done, right? The TV ads are up on the air, the doors are being knocked or whatever the virtual equivalent is. That extra money is not going very far. It's mostly going into consultants' pockets and TV ads that are offsetting each other. Um, so, I, and I think we are seeing that a lot as huge volumes of money pour into these particular high salience races where the marginal dollar just doesn't do very much. Um, the broader question though is how do people's minds change and do they change? And, and here I, I think it's interesting, right? So what I told you is true. Most money is um, translating into votes at a much slower rate than people anticipate. At the same time, persuasion does happen. And in fact, when people disaggregate the swing between, um, for instance, um, 2012 and 2016, what they found was um, more of it was persuasion than turnout. Even though we now think of elections as primarily being, being uh, about both parties turning out their base, the actual swing in the election between 2012 and 2016 that puts Donald Trump in the White House seems to be people who in the past previously voted for Obama switching, right? So there is persuasion happening. Right? The question is how and why. And that's obviously a complicated one. There's books and books and books written about that. Um, I would recommend the, the, the book by Sides, Vavrek, and Tesla about 2016 is the most comprehensive explanation I'd seen. But I guess what I would just say is persuasion does happen. It just doesn't happen in this conventional way that people think, well, if I just give people the facts and they'll change their mind. Right? And in fact, I think that's the wrong model of opinion change. Um, all of us, you know, very few of us, enter an issue with a blank slate, gather a bunch of facts, and then form an opinion in the way a civics textbook would suggest. That's just not how politics works. And it's, it's not true for anyone. We'd like to flatter ourselves that we base our opinions on facts, but rarely is that the way opinion formation works. And I think that absolutely applies here. You know, Robeson and I have a history uh, about this issue. Um, mine goes way, way back to uh, work I did with an organization called Beyond War uh, back uh, before any of you people were born. Um, Beyond War was a project that set out to educate people about the dangers of nuclear war and change the behavior of uh, the nations about, about the use of nuclear weapons to resolve conflict. And this was at a time when um, it was uh, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev that was a pretty, pretty big lift. And some of the work that was done back then said, you know, humans have a chemical in the brain that uh, wants to preserve status quo that it fights against change, it fights against uh, anything that, 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 that wants to change your mind, so to speak. And the, we have then the theory of cognitive dissonance that at least at the time it was, well, information comes in, which doesn't, uh, which doesn't comport with, uh, with what, what your status quo thinking is, and you have to make a decision at some point based on that cognitive dissonance uh, decision, of course, the etymology of which is a decision cut away from, uh, and thus people's minds can change. And Robeson and I um, in our Halcyon days started an organization that said, yeah, it's all fine to have an agenda, a policy agenda, but who cares about policy? Uh, what the Republicans have done really well is to uh, is to speak to people's emotions. They come up with emotionally resonant messages, which 
up and and they all repeat it ad infinitum and thus we have uh death tax and everybody says it and pretty soon everybody's talking about it and things change what's the equivalent these days how does is that still what is at work in changing perceptions is that why donald trump was able to win in 2016 because when he said what have you got to lose what have they done for you in the 40 years we've had democrats um try me and it, it was that just so appealing that people said yeah pox on all their houses uh, i'll go with donald trump because he doesn't need to be corrupt because he's got all the money and He's not from, he's not a politician. We have two minutes. Well, two minutes to explain why Donald Trump won. Um, well, I, I won't even, I won't even try, but I guess, I guess what I would say is candidate choice definitely is not just about policy. Um, that's absolutely true. Partisan loyalty is number one. Um, policy's in there, um, but it matters less than you'd think in 2016, uh, Trump really de-emphasized policy with the exception maybe of immigration, as you mentioned, and people actually thought he was quite moderate. So interestingly, his appeal was mostly not about policy, but because he presented as a non-traditional Republican, he was seen as moderate and that may have actually helped him. Um, he was seen as more conservative this time. The, the data you know, are still being analyzed. I expect that will be found to have hurt him. Um, but uh, interestingly, he had almost no policy agenda at all. If you recall, he didn't even have a platform. They just said, you know, they just took the platform from last time and said, this is what we're doing. So, um, you know, it's a different kind of politics. Um, what I would say, though, is just to remind listeners that change does happen. People are hard. People's minds are hard to change. But think about our lifetimes. Think about how public opinion has been transformed on gay marriage. Right. A remarkable issue where public opinion has been completely transformed um, and marijuana uh, legalization to, a, to another extent. All right, I get the final lightning round question. Brendan Nyhan. Better undergraduate institution, Dartmouth or Swarthmore? Go. Uh, no comment. They are both uh, delightful. Uh, Swarthmore is my undergrad institution. So uh, yes, if you uh, if you are applying to school, I encourage you to uh, to consider both. And I'm happy to to talk to people offline about the pros and cons. What a this great politician! Off, it's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on KXL. Professor Brendan Nyan, thanks for joining us, and we will be back after this. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with co-hosts Matt Robeson. I'm Paul Hodes on WKXL and podcast all over the known universe. In our first couple of segments this week, we've talked with Professor Brendan Nyan, the Department of Government at Dartmouth College, whose work and research is about misperceptions in politics, about why we can't agree on basic facts anymore, about what is the cause of this disagreement about basic facts? And is there a fix? How do you change it? And how, how does democracy work where people just can't, can't agree on the basic facts? It's not just disagreements over policy anymore. Uh, policy disagreements have always been about, okay, we, we have a basic set of facts that we can agree on. Now, what's the policy that we ought to enact to deal with that? But where you can't agree on basic facts, democracy gets a little bit more difficult, doesn't it, Robeson? It does. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, Brendan was really touching on some really deep, important issues 
Um, and I, I, the biggest one is this issue of incentives within our political system. What are the incentives for politicians to be truthful? And look, you know, we, we've seen this play out in the post-November 3rd, uh, I don't even know what to call it, that, that sort of the cascade of lies about, about the election outcome that's led to, it, it dignifies it too much to call it a controversy, but it is. It is a, there is a back and forth between the parties around basic facts. And, you know, as Brendan was saying, it is an awfully good thing that a number of key individuals in the Republican Party have shown some backbone in recent months and stood up to all the pressures inside their own party um, because there are plenty of people inside the Republican Party who are willing to tell you that truth or lies and up is down and black is white and uh, that the election was won by hundreds of thousands of votes by Donald Trump. And it's awfully hard to run a democracy with that kind of environment. And I don't think it is fixable with uh, any, as, as he said, with any silver bullets. I think it comes down to sort of the deep incentives in our politics for people to be truthful um, and to play nicely. Uh, and those incentives are not there right now. And so if, if people are expecting something better out of our political institutions, out of our politicians, they're not going to see it until those incentives change. Do you think that the politicians who we are seeing telling us that up is down and black is white and left is right and right is left and there is no center, um, do they really believe it? Or are they after um, are they after are they after votes? Are they after power? Do they really believe it? That's such a great question. I'm going to turn it around to you in a second, but I'll give you my my quick answer. I was actually literally just talking about this your exact question with my wife yesterday, and you know, looking at all these Republican senators who have decided to challenge the results in the vote counting in Congress. Are they so that the options are? Um, they either truly believe this or, number two, they're doing it cynically as a political ploy. Which is worse? That's my question. Which is worse? I tend to think, you, you referred earlier in the last seg segment to cognitive dissonance. I think that it's probably, I'm going to cheat here, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that they have probably bought into some of the information they're seeing. They, they can tell themselves, I'm just raising questions. I'm just representing my constituents who have these questions. Well, of course, that's a, that's a circular piece of logic, isn't it? Why do they have these questions, right? Because this stuff keeps getting spouted by the leader of our country. Um, so I, I think it's a mix of both. I think they are saying to themselves, if I, if I had a leading hypothesis, it's that they're saying to themselves, look, Maybe there are some questions that deserve to get raised. At the very least, my constituents who I represent have some questions. And I certainly am not paying any political penalty for doing this kind of thing. What is your take, Paul Hodes? Well, I lay some of this directly. Uh, the, latest, the latest spasm of inability to, to separate truth from fiction, I lay it at the feet of the current president of the United States. I think that he is has been a brilliant manipulator his entire life. Um, he has built his life upon falsehoods. 
Uh, he built his life upon the lie that he was a successful businessman. He would call the journalists up or others up posing as some kind of journalist or PR guy or something, something else. Um, he, uh, he, he came into office and I, I, I clearly remember Kellyanne Conway, his uh, closest advisor going on television and, and using the phrase alternative facts. Uh, well, there are alternative facts. And I think that, that he saw that a concerted effort to use his office and the power, the new power of social media by which he was going to govern to distort reality um, and create a completely fictional universe, uh, a, a fictional political universe in which whatever he said one day uh, was completely opposite from whatever he said the next day, it complete, it removed from our political dialogue the, a firm ground around facts because he doesn't, he didn't care about policy, he cared about Trump. He didn't care about truth, he cared about Trump. Now, I, I don't, I know I sound overly partisan about this, but it's simply a fact that what he did was destroy truth. Um, and in destroying truth, he has amplified, exacerbated, increased this problem that, that, that was a long time in gestation, but he was the perfect carrier of, of the, of the anti-truth um, uh, message. He was, he was the embodiment. He's the embodiment of a lie. And, and that has had serious repercussions on a fragile political system, which depended on norms. Um, even, even as bad as it was uh, up till 2016, something really changed with Trump. And, 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 I, and, and when we ask what can be done to fix it, um, it strikes me that number one, come January 20th, come hell or high water, uh, he'll not be president. And that's really important. Um, and maybe, maybe that's the beginning of some recovery. Because I don't know about you, but I'm suffering from uh, a PTDS, post-Trump dysfunction syndrome and i think we all we all are in this country and uh i think that's going to be an important step to beginning a very long uh, process of trying to get back to some some shared a shared agreement about some basic facts well i just want to read you know this quote from to you uh it's it's very short. The egregious ploy to reject electors may enhance the political ambition of some, but dangerously threatens our democratic republic. I could never have imagined seeing these things in the greatest democracy in the world has ambition so eclipsed principle. Now that's Mitt Romney speaking there. And it's just a reminder of the fact that, look, as I said before, our democracy depends on, as you said, norms, and also on the will of women and men who are in a position to stand up for principle. And 
we've seen very recently Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, stand up under pressure from the President of the United States and say, no, I, there, is, there is an objective truth, there are laws, and I'm going to stand for them, and you cannot put the thumbscrews to me and make me turn my back on those things. And he really deserves a JFK Profiles in Courage you know, award for, for standing up. It is, it is on the efforts. It is, it is out of these people creating a shield for the rest of us that we get to continue to have a democracy. And boy, is that a thin shield. That's, I think, what you're pointing to, which is that that shield has been more than sufficient most of the time in the history of our country, but it has almost never come under so much sustained, powerful, and direct assault as we've seen under Donald Trump. And it has now become dangerously frayed, dangerously thin, and it's really down to a handful of people, people on the Wayne County Board of Elections saying, no, I'm not going to upend the results of the election um, in this predominantly African-American voting area of Michigan, overturn the results in Michigan, overturn the results of the United States. So it, it's kind of a frightening thing, but I do, lest we veer into at the start of a new year, um, total cynicism and kind of a downbeat note, I do think Professor Nyan raised a really important point, which is change does happen, right? People can't be totally fooled all of the time. And we've seen massive shifts in public opinion on core values in our society. So that's kind of a hopeful note. I, I do think that we don't have to feel like we are stuck in this moment forever. There is a way out. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's just a pretty dark moment right now. So I read recently an uh, interview with Reverend Barber, who had an interesting follow on essentially to the point you just made, which is that, uh, you know, this is in some ways um, not unusual for the United States. We had Reconstruction, and we had a terrible regressive movement after that. We have the civil rights movement, and we had huge pushback and re regression uh, after, after that. We've had these swings in American history uh, frequently, and uh, you know, at the moment, we're not having uh, House of Representative members caning each other on the floor of the House. So I suppose we can take some solace in that our politics haven't gotten uh, that kind of violent among the members themselves, just uh, merely verbal, merely verbally. Uh, and, you know, when he was he was asked, so uh, how do you fix it? How do you how do you heal it? His sense was, well, We've just had um, a vice, a, the former vice president um, and his running mate, the first female African American Indian of Indian descent um, uh, elected uh, as leaders of our country by more votes than ever in our history. And yes, while there were large numbers of people who didn't vote, that is significant. It was a significant rejection uh, of the way that Donald Trump has governed. And he said the way forward, he said, was if you want to heal the soul of the nation, then let's heal the body first. So when you can uh, provide health care 
for everybody in this country and go into those parts of the country which might have rejected basic facts and rejected uh, values uh, or think they don't want a government take over healthcare. And all of a sudden they say, well, wait a second, my, my daughter was sick and now she can go to the doctor and get healthcare. You've made a, a step in helping to change somebody's mind. When you, when you focus on the fact that politicians swear an oath, not to their parties, but to the constitution of the United States to uphold justice and to see that government works for the general welfare. And you uh, go into places where uh, there hasn't been justice and you provide justice that is clear. Uh, people can say, okay, I get it. That's what government is about. And then you begin to restore a trust, uh, you begin to heal the body politic, and maybe, just maybe, we get back to a place where we can agree to disagree without being so disagreeable. Wouldn't that be just a real twist for 2021 to see the glimmers of that kind of return to normal dysfunction? So I'll give you 15 seconds for the last word. Amen. And, uh, you know, let's cross our fingers that something like that indeed is sort of the playbook for 2021. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We'll see you next week.